How about it? Can you, when you are plagued with loss and doubt and failure and pain, can you and I sing those words? Now, I thank my God. I'm going to wrestle with that today. Let's pray together. Oh God, plagued as we are with this business of survival, how do we thank you? Can we really? Lord, we're going to give a stiff reality check to this attitude of gratitude business. Let Holy Scripture teach us these moments we remain here in your house. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A thief, a robber, an intruder broke into the modest little home of the 18th century celebrated Englishman Christian scholar, Bible scholar. His name Matthew Henry. The thief broke into that little bungalow there in England and stole Matthew Henry's purse. We call it a wallet today. His life savings in that little purse. But that cheerful little old gentleman, wouldn't you know it, the next day goes to his diary and comes up with four reasons to be thankful. I quote now from Matthew Henry, the great commentator's diary. Let me be thankful first, he wrote, because he, the thief, never robbed me before. That's a good attitude. Second, because although he took my purse, he did not take my life. That's good. Third, because although he took all I possessed, it was not much. (laughs) Sorry, that's all you got. And fourth, because it was I who was robbed, not I who robbed. Hmm. Is this some sort of Pollyanna-ish naivety that seeks to take this concept of an attitude of gratitude and apply it to survival in the third millennium? I mean, come on, Matthew Henry, please. And yet when Holy Scripture comes along and admonishes us, as it does, what do we do with this admonition? Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 Does that admonition mean that an attitude of gratitude must be maintained in the face of personal, deep personal suffering? I promised you last Sabbath that today, this Sabbath of Thanksgiving weekend, that we would go to a Bible teaching that would compel us to wrestle intellectually as well as experientially. And I said last week, we're going to give this attitude of gratitude a stiff reality check. Not this little namby-pamby stuff that somebody's trying to, with a little bit of alliteration, pass off on us. Well, let me give you a reality check. Saturday night, I flew out to Seattle. I hadn't planned to go to Seattle. But thanks to our new uh, 
executive assistant, Sherry Davis. And we met Sherry in first service because we had uh, some time to give personal thanks to some special people in our first service congregation. But Sherry said, you know, Dwight, this is your mother's first holiday after your dad's death in August. She's going to be at your sister's place. Your brother lives not very far away. My sister Carrie, my brother Greg. You need to be out there. And so she got on the phone and voila, ticket. So I flew out Saturday night. My mother. Since dad's death. Their, their anniversary just a week ago would have been number 54. I mean, come on, stiff reality check. Is my mother supposed to have an attitude of gratitude for the fact that, that, that my dad died on her? Hmm? And my brother, he is going through a huge crisis right now in his life. Is Greg, is Cindy, are the children, what are they supposed to have? Some kind of attitude of gratitude for what's happened? I mean, how far are we supposed to, how far are you supposed to, how far am I supposed to push this attitude of gratitude business? If you're Dr. Larry Crabb, if you're a renowned Christian psychologist who is also an author, I want to tell you something. You will push this envelope to the very max. And I want to share with you a little bit of what Dr. Larry Crabb has written. I told you that Evie gave me his book a few weeks ago. Shattered Dreams. What's the subtitle? God's Unexpected Pathway to Joy. I've recommended that book to my mother. She's reading it. My brother, he's read it. Anybody who's going through personal suffering right now, I'd recommend it to you. Larry Crabb, Shattered Dreams. According to Dr. Crabb, God awakens our appetite. It's a good Thanksgiving word, isn't it? God awakens our appetite for Him through personal suffering. He actually uses suffering. Watch this. I have, I, I tell you what, folks, I have, I have wrestled with his proposition. I, I want you to try it on. Uh, let me read the words to you here. He, speaking of God, uses the pain of shattered dreams. Now, now let me hold it right there. Put a, hit a pause button on that. Shattered dreams. That's what Larry Crabb refers to as anything that you have longed for all your life. I've longed for a happy marriage and your marriage turns out rotten. That would be a shattered dream, majorly. I've longed to succeed in my career and your career poops out. That would be a major shattered dream. I always thought we'd have a happy family and that our children would all turn out perfect and I'd be a perfect parent. Shattered dream, it's over. You're never going to have it. Shattered dreams, loss. See, that, that, that's his metaphor for personal suffering. Now, let me go back to that uh, quotation again. God uses the pain of shattered dreams to help us discover our desire for God, to help us begin dreaming the highest dream, which elsewhere in his book, he notes, is to personally know and experience God. Now, hold on. This is something else. Shattered dreams are not accidents of fate. They are ordained opportunities for the Spirit first to awaken, then to satisfy our highest dream. End quote. Wow. I mean, I have brooded over this, over this premise. In my, I, you know, my life is, compared to my mother, nothing. Compared to what my brother's going through, nothing. I'm not suffering. But are you suggesting that somehow God causes these? 
He causes these shattered dreams. In fact, Crabb will go on in the book and he'll say, you know what? If you really love that person, what you've got to pray is that if this shattered dream does not work, taking that person closer to God, then you pray that when he moves to his next dream, that God will shatter that dream. And if that shattered dream does not work, then you pray that God will take him to the next shattered dream. And when he touches that, when she touches that, boom, it's gone. It's shattered. Ashes in her mouth. You keep praying that prayer. That, I want, that is an, that is a heavy prayer to pray. Because I want to tell you something else. You don't pray it only for the one you love. It's really gutsy if you have the courage to pray the prayer first for yourself. Shatter my life, dream after dream, layer after layer, oh God, until finally that red-hot passion is solitary to know and to experience you as nothing else in life. Whoa. What what, what do you think about uh, Crab's premise? I would have dismissed it. Ah, a guy trying to sell books, that's what he's trying to do. I would have dismissed it, except that on a hook... In the very back of my mind, I have been hanging a sentence that for years I have been unable to understand. I want to share that sentence with you. It's from a classic on the Sermon on the Mount called Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing. One sentence. Now, I'm going to save the sentence to the end of the paragraph. I want you to get the, re- the, the lead up to it. When God permits trials and afflictions, okay... It is for our profit that we might be partakers of His holiness. That would be Hebrews 12.10. If received in faith, the trial that seems so bitter and hard will prove a blessing. The cruel blow that blights the joys of earth will be the means of turning our eyes to heaven. That is exactly what Larry Crabb's book is all about. Your shattered dreams will turn you, turn you heavenward. Read on. How ma- This is something. How many there are who would never have known Jesus had not sorrow led them to seek comfort from Him. You see? Go through it. Go through it. It'll get you to me. That's what Crabb is saying. So is this author. One more sentence. Here's the sentence hanging on a hook in my mind. Here it is. The trials of life are God's workmen. I used to think the sentence should read, The trials of life are Satan's workmen. Ladies and gentlemen, either we have a huge typographical error here, or Dr. Larry Crabb may be onto something big about life and suffering and thanksgiving. Look at this. The, the trials of life are God's workmen to remove the impurities and roughness from our character. End quote. Isn't that, does that strike you as amazing? I mean, like, wow. I mean, here you have a renowned Christian psychologist, a 19th century Christian writer, and both are asserting unequivocally that our sufferings are, may I use Crabbe's word, ordained. And may I use Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings word, workmen. Our sufferings are ordained workmen, designed to take us deeper and closer than we have ever dreamed we could go. So that, by the way, oh... If you've been blessed, I'm going to put, please, you'll understand why I put the quotation marks here. If you have been blessed by a marriage that has never satisfied your soul, you ought to thank God. Can you believe that? You ought to thank God. 
If you have been blessed with a loss, you are going through loss right now. Financial, professional, personal, doesn't matter, social. If you've been blessed by a loss, you ought to thank God. Thank you, Jesus, for that loss. If you are living right now with a shattered dream, that dream didn't turn out, sister. You'll never, you, you will never get that dream. You will never get it. If you're living right now with a shattered dream, you've been blessed. Thank God. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I need to be very quick to insert this caveat. Neither writer for a moment suggests that God is the cause of that suffering, our suffering. All right? Please get that clear. The fact of the matter is, oftentimes, I cause my own suffering. Eat too much at the Thanksgiving dinner table, I cause my own suffering. Do I not? I can't blame the culinary specialist who put that delectable meal together. Oftentimes, I cause my own suffering by my choices, by my prayerlessness, by my carelessness. Sometimes others cause my suffering by their carelessness or lovelessness. Sometimes the devil or one of his hell demons personally causes my suffering. But the scriptures are clear. God is neither the author nor the source or cause of evil. And suffering, by the way, in anybody's book, including the this is the Advent season, including the incarnated Christ. Suffering is evil in anybody's book. It was evil in Jesus' book. The Scriptures are clear. James 1.13, No one when tempted should say, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself tempts no one. So let's just get that out of the way, alright? If you're suffering right now, don't you wag that little finger in the face of God. You may go ahead and do it. It will be therapy for your soul sometimes. But do it knowing you're not right. You know, you can do that. I don't really believe this, God, but I'll tell you what, you're the only one I can kick at. And that's often true. God is the only one we can kick at. We can't rant and rave at the devil, so we rant and rave at God. He's big enough. He can take it. Better to go to God than to not go at all. And there's some people in the midst of suffering who say, I don't go at all. And that's the ultimate tragedy. More on that in just a moment. But God, God does not cause. No, 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 no. God is not the author of evil. No, no, no. But, and this will be for the academicians in our midst who are really fine hair splitters. This will be the, this is the craw. The, 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 uh, the, that which is stuck in the craw. And that is, okay, Dwight, God didn't cause it. God is not the source of it. But, fess up. He allowed it. And you win. You win that point. He does allow it. Larry Crabb says, why? Let's check it out. Open your Bible to the mighty apocalypse. That's been our theme book this fall semester here at Andrews University. Nice to have all of you visitors who are here with us today. You're visiting loved ones here. We're delighted to have you. The students are gone. Glad to have you sit in that pew where they would be sitting. Let's go to the apocalypse, the book of Revelation. All this, all this fall, we've been looking at pictures of Jesus. And that's why we have... Uh, visiting friends, this beautiful, this picture was painted, by the way, in our very first worship service of this semester, painted while we worship, right here in front of our eyes. We've been looking for the faces of Christ in the mighty apocalypse. We're going to go to where we left off last week. In fact, I purposely didn't read what needed to have been read last week, just two more verses. So let's go back to where we were last Sabbath. This is uh, Revelation chapter 7. I'll be in the New Revised Standard Version. I want to, I think it best that we pick it up in verse 9. 
Revelation 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, that would have to be in heaven, and before the Lamb, robed in white with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud megaphone voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, verse 11. And all the angels, we're talking about millions and millions, stood around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshipped God singing. And here was our text last week. Singing, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom. And what's the next word? What's the next word? Thanksgiving. There is Thanksgiving in heaven. Only in heaven, it's not an annual event. It's a daily reality. Amen, they sing. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Now, there's a little more. Then, verse 13, one of the elders addressed me saying, Hey, John, you, you're up here. I want to ask you a question. Who are these robed in white and where have they come from? John looks at this elder and says, What is, what, what are you suggesting? I'm not the one who lives here. You live here. You tell, you answer your own question. The elder says, okay, I will. Verse 14, and the elder said to me, these are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Ladies and gentlemen, there is the huge clue to how to have, how to live with an attitude of gratitude. You just read it right there. They have come, did you see this? That's why I like the new revised here. They have come out of the great ordeal. Ordeal. The old King James says they have come out of the great tribulation. Which being interpreted means that these people who are singing that song have come out of great suffering. Great ordeal, great tribulation, great suffering. Any way you want to stack it, it's all great and it's all bad. It's bad. Do you understand? Bad. They've come out of it. The great ordeal. Some of you listening right now on television, some of you listening right here, are in the midst of a great ordeal. It's bad what you're going through. We can't flower this up. We can't make death look like a victory. We can't make divorce look like a a conquering. We can't make disease look like a, a wonderful advancement in your life. It's bad. They've gone through what is bad. But apparently, it must mean that when you've been through a great ordeal in life, you find greater cause for rejoicing in the life you just went through. What is this? Apparently, ipso facto, the one follows the other. Great suffering, great rejoicing. Great ordeal, great gratitude. In fact, the key is in the word thanksgiving. Do you know what the word thanksgiving... Well, let's just look at the word thanksgiving. What is this? Verse 12, singing, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Do you know what that word for thanksgiving is in the Greek? Eucharistia. You see it there on the screen. From whence comes our word Eucharist. And what is the Eucharist? If it is not the grand and glorious celebration of the suffering of Christ upon the cross at the Lord's Supper. Or we would call it the Lord's Suffering Table. Thanksgiving is embedded in the cross of human pain. Do you see that? Inseparably linked. Thanksgiving with divine and human suffering. Great ordeal, 
Great gratitude. Great suffering. Great thanksgiving. Calvary. Oh, think about this, ladies and gentlemen. Calvary is the ultimate shattered dream. I want to ask you something. Did Jesus want the dream to be shattered? Did He want the dream to be shattered? No, He did not. He begged the night before. He begged, don't shatter this dream on me. But God said, no, I have an even one more greater dream. And because it is the greatest dream that can be dreamed in this universe, I have to shatter you right now. You will be shattered. But out of your shattering, the human race will be saved. And know me whom to know is life eternal. Don't you wag your finger in the face of God and accuse Him of having an uncaring heart and an unknowing mind about shattered dreams. Been there, done that, He says. Been there. I've already done that. Richard John Newhouse, wonderful writer. In fact, U.S. News and World Report called him one of the bright intellectuals in the United States today. Karen and I went on a date a few, three Saturday nights ago and found a little deli down in South Bend and then I dragged her over to Borders so that I could look at some books for a couple hours. She was so excited. She said, can we stay longer? <laughs> anyway, while I was there, I found this book by Richard John Newhouse. Title of the book, Death on a Friday Afternoon. And I'm, I'm right now in the middle of it. It's, he, he has taken, Newhouse has taken the seven last words of Christ. And he's written this 270-page essay on those words. And it just, it just, it's, it will stir your soul. Don't agree with everything that's written there. No, 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 no. But uh, sometimes you've got to get stirred that way. Anyway, he's, he's, he's meditating right now in this particular chapter on the third word of the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he observes that even though Jesus knew preordained suffering is ahead, it did not lessen the horror of experiencing it. And so I want to read to you now Richard John Newhouse's words. Jesus' awareness that all this had been foreordained. By the way, I want to hit a pause button right there. You know what? Some of you are suffering. Could it be that your suffering right now has also been foreordained? I know that, I know that smacks. I know that, that really... It gives us some discomfort. But what if, what if, in the grand scheme of life, well, think about it. Jesus' awareness that all this had been foreordained does not diminish the horror that attends the glory. To Pilate, he, de he declares, You say that I am a king? For this I was born. For this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Now, Newhouse is writing, I submit, we should not read this as though Jesus were delivering a homily. Please. There is no hint of bravado here. He has been arrested, humiliated, struck in the face, shuttled around from one hate-filled crowd to another. Their words, spittle sprayed with derision. That's Newhouse's language. And now he sees the agony and death looming before him. For this I was born, and for this I have come into the world. Hear him say it through clenched teeth, perspiring almost in a whisper. End quote. Clearly, Calvary, that cross over there, Calvary is the ultimate shattered dream. It is the ultimate of human or divine suffering. And it is that cross that the apocalypse dares to tell us is the crimson key to an attitude of gratitude. 
Verse 13, read it again. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these robed in white? Where have they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you're the one that knows. And then he said to me, These are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and they have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Read, suffered. Blood-soaked gratitude. White with once pain and now glory. Which surely must mean that when you've been through the great ordeal of life... See, it says great ordeal. You know what? You are going to go through the great ordeal one day. Some of you have already been there. Some of you are there now. For some of us, it is still coming. I had someone come up to me after second church during, uh, during Sabbath school. And uh, this physician said, you know, man... Dwight, I really don't like this thought. I mean, you know, please, this great ordeal is still coming. Yep, it's still coming. You don't have to panic. Watch what happens here. You don't have to panic. But if it hasn't come, it'll come. By the way, don't ask for it. Don't ask for it. You'll get it soon enough. Be thankful when it comes. Don't rush it, please. Apparently, though, when you've been through the great ordeal of life, you can find an even greater cause for rejoicing in the very life that has brought you this ordeal and the life to come. Who are these people? These are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. All right, I've got to ask you as we tie the ends together now, how do all these pieces possibly fit? I want to tie it together with a story. It's a story written by an Australian woman physician. She's the author of the book, Growing Through Stress. I'm reading the book right now. Adventist Frontier Missions has published the book, republished it under their title now. Marvelous book. Her name is Kath Donovan. She tells the story of how the words of an OB patient, all right, doc, an OB patient, forever changed Kath's life. Let me just read her words. We met in a delivery ward. She was a patient in strong labor, and I was the doctor looking after her. When I offered her a pain-killing injection, she refused it with the words, Pain and I are old friends. Kath Donovan writes, I wouldn't recognize her if I saw her again, but few people have influenced my life more. I used to have a very clear and simple view of pain. It was the enemy. My job was to keep it away from the patients in my care. But this woman, who only briefly touched my life, opened my mind to a far broader view of it. Could pain really be a friend? Could it have a positive place in my life? Pain and I are old friends. Could it be that shattered dreams are supposed to be old friends too? That what we once thought were enemies are in fact ordained workmen sent by God to take us to a deeper place we have never in our lives ever, ever been. And we can't get there without the shattered dream. Martin Luther is absolutely right. Without great assaults and trials, God's grace and goodness cannot be understood. You're not going to get it unless you have shattered dreams. The mighty reformer writes. And then that author, you know the one who wrote Thoughts, to the Mount, Thoughts on the Mount of Blessing? 
I took a sentence from that author and scribbled it right by Peter's denial in Matthew 26. I have these words written there. It's a heavy line. There are some lessons that will never be learned except through failure. Isn't that some? There's some things, boy, you're not going to ever learn unless I let you fail. Some lessons. Pain and I are old friends. See? No wonder. No wonder. And so Larry Crabb, let me end with this. That's why he can be so dogmatic. Take a look at this. And I love this, by the way. God will never allow suffering to come into our lives that is not necessary to achieve His purpose, His good purpose. He does not like to see us suffer. You know what that means? If we are going through suffering right now, God has already pre-tested that. He said, okay, yep, let Him go, let Him go. Come on, some of you, how many of us have been parents of little tights, uh, little, little tykes, little tots? Some of you are going to be parents one day. Every parent knows that before you put your baby in the bathwater, come on, Mama, what do you do first, Papa? Of course, you always put your fingers into that water. You pre-test the water. If your fingers tell you it's too hot, will you ever say, well, too bad. <laughs> You'd be in trouble with the law, wouldn't you? No. Oh. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there is no temptation, there is no suffering, there is no trial that has ever come to you, but that is not common to the human race. You're not the first one, bud, who's been through this. But with every trial, every suffering, every temptation, God will provide a open door of escape. God has pre-tested that water, my friend. Madam, if you're going through immense, if you're going through the great ordeal right now, God has already put His hand in that water, and He has determined, she's going to make it. With me. With me. That's a caveat. With me. That's a condition. With me. God takes a calculated risk because there are times when He allows His child to go into water. But the child does not remember the with me part. And God loses the child over a shattered dream. Do you understand this? There are some people that walk away from God when their dream is shattered and they say, never again, you are out of my life forever. God risks losing in order that somehow He might draw that one closer than He had ever dreamed He could draw to God. Crab says, please, if you're going through it, that's because God loves you. It's necessary. Here's, one, here's another sentence. Crab, when God allows terrible pain to come into our lives, He is removing a satisfaction. Oh, I don't like this illustration. I hate the way He illustrates it. Because I think of my mother. And I say, it, it just doesn't work. Stiff reality check doesn't work here. But He chose this illustration. When God allows terrible pain to come into our lives, He's removing a satisfaction. Often a legitimate one like the enjoyment of one's spouse that keeps us happy and content whether we know God well or not. He's taking away good food to make us hungry for better fare. I don't understand that. I don't understand that at all. Finally, he writes, perhaps we're meant to learn. Now, this is good. Perhaps we're meant to learn that the richest hope 
permits the deepest suffering, which releases the strongest power, which then produces the greatest joy. Maybe, he concludes, there is no shortcut to joy. No shortcut. You know somebody going through a crisis right now? Go to that somebody. You can't, you, can't, you can't let a loved one of yours go through the crisis alone for Pete's sake. You go. I mean, they feel all alone as it is right now. You go. But you know what? You don't go to take away the pain. You can't do it anyway. You go in the middle of that shattered dream to be a presence for God, an incarnation of God. Beside the one who suffers. And you pray the prayer, God, through this shattered dream, take him deeper than he has ever been before. Pain. Hey, look, maybe, the, maybe the lady's right. Pain and I are old friends. These are they who have come out of the great ordeal and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Pain and I are old friends. Because apparently white pain and white robes are the gifts of the same Jesus who experienced the pain first and who washed our robes white. Maybe... Our old friend pain is his way of going deeper with our forever friend God. And by the way, just in case you were wondering, there will come a day when God takes that pain forever away. Which is why the very last line, get this, the very last line of Revelation 7 reads, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Isn't that beautiful? But until then, that old gospel hymn, until then my heart will, how's it go? Go on singing. Until then, with joy, I'll carry on until the day my eyes behold the city. Until the day. Hallelujah. God calls me home.